Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we look at a call to submit in marriage. We live today in a world that is at war. A war in politics, at war in our culture, and our social structures, and even religion. One of the issues that have been fought throughout the ages is that of the relationship between men and women, the gender wars. Women have been fighting for generations for rights that have been denied them due only to their gender, and rightly so. Even in, their, in our own nation, we can read or understand of a time when women were denied the right to vote. There are many issues that are hotly debated and contested even today. This isn't just our nation, but also the rest of the world. In Saudi Arabia, women cannot drive a car. They cannot wear clothes or makeup that show off their beauty. They cannot interact with men that are not their relatives. They cannot go for a swim or compete freely in sports or even try on clothes when shopping. Could you imagine that, not being able to try on clothes when you're shopping? And to our Western sensibilities, that seems strange and maybe even a little inhumane. Some of these issues have to do with not just political and cultural norms, but also religion. Too many times, religion has been used as a cover to justify abuse, belittling, and contracting the rights of women. And it should not be so. For even Christianity has fallen prey to this and guilty of the same attitudes. And we'd like to address one of those this morning, which brings us today's passage on submission and wives. Again, a portion of Scripture that had been at times misinterpreted and misapplied to subjugate women and wives. In the last passage, or last week's passage, Peter addresses the command of God for his people to willingly submit to our social structure authority so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. As children of God, we recognize that all authority are agents of God and that he uses them to accomplish his purposes. And we must understand that God expects this of us, whether they are good or evil, though we are never compelled to approve, to follow, or confirm them in their evil deeds. Our obedience, Scripture tells us, will serve to be a witness to Christ's work in our own lives. One pastor notes that Peter has been encouraging believers on how to live in the midst of a hostile society and how to conduct ourselves in a world that is set against us. We live in that type of world even today. He remarks that if we have an impact in our culture, if we are to have an impact in our culture, I should say, we must submit to the social order, to the social structure and the social patterns that God has designed. We cannot be rebels. We have not been called to be rebels. We cannot demand our rights in the same way as everyone else may. We cannot feel superior to the social order. With the privilege of being a child of God comes the responsibility of submission. In the passage of the past few weeks, believers are called to humbleness and submitting, faithfulness to God in serving and witnessing to unbelievers while enduring suffering to the glory of God. In today's passage, Peter calls the elect exiles to submit to marriage or in marriage. Now, this is not a discourse on male and female status or even Christian marriage itself. In view, as we read this in context, in view is a mixed marriage of believers and unbelievers. So with that, let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that, if, so that even if some do not obey the word, word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of the wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Look at verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, 
calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Father, so we come before you with a lot of baggage with this passage. As we read this, uh, some of our hearts may start to do a little tumble, a little bit of maybe even a rejection, a little bit of rebellion, or a little bit, bit of pushback, because this has been used in a way many times that has done disservice to your glory and to what your word and what Peter is writing. So give us humility this morning. Break down those, those barriers we may have in considering the work of the Spirit in this passage. Give us wisdom and discernment and let us understand the difference between your truth and my opinion and my word and let me make that very clear. But above all, let us come together, Lord, that we may glorify you in our marriages, in our relationships, in our submission to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Peter starts this passage with the words, likewise. That's pointing out that the subject of submission is still in view that he's been writing out previously. He's already impressed upon these elect exiles to the necessity of submitting to all forms of the government, the workplace, and other social structures. He's now going to write of the necessity of submitting in marriage. Now, the precept, you've heard me, precept, principle, person. That's what Scripture is working us through. The precept, the command, is very simple. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, as a reminder, the word subject means to willingly subordinate oneself or to place oneself under the authority of another. Now, I want to make a few clarifications about this passage before we dive fully in. This passage is not... This passage is not about a woman submitting to all men. Scripture is saying, wives, submit to your own husbands. It's not speaking about or teaching that women are in any way inferior to men. Scripture and Christianity is totally different than the world culture at any time in that regard. Wives, it is not teaching that wives are subservient to their husbands or are subservient to other husbands. Peter is directing his command specifically in this passage to a woman who is a believer in Christ and is married to one who is not a believer. It's most likely has in view a married couple in which the wife becomes a Christian after marriage. This would have been a very common occurrence during the first century, especially with the rapid growth of the church as the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the old Roman Empire. First of all, let me give you some background and context into Peter's world as he writes to these elect exiles in first century Asia Minor. From there, we can work our way into our own context and into the scriptural truths that surpass all times and surpasses all cultural culture. To understand this command, we must first understand the role and place of wives at that time in first century. Pastor John MacArthur uh, writes or notes that in that culture, women's opinions, now this is not mine, and this is not John MacArthur, he's stating what was a fact in those days. Women's opinions were considered irrelevant, immaterial, and unwanted. They were considered property of their fathers and husbands. They could be beaten and even killed in some instances with no repercussions. These attitudes, now let me show you, these attitudes were not based on God's design or command. But like slavery that we speak, spoke of last week, it's a product of sin-hardened hearts. This attitude carried over into the marriage in respect to religion. The ESV Study Bible notes that in those days, the Greek historian Plutarch wrote that a wife should not inquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant of friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. So you can imagine someone uh, gets married, she is to, to, to negate everything in the past and join her husband. Worship his gods, just have his friends. Now in those days, a wife typically would go and live with her husband's parents. That's how it was. That They would all have been one family in that regard. So as we go on, uh, for a Christian wife then, for a Christian wife 
to have a different religion than her husband was quite astonishing for the culture. So as you look at this, that's the context. A wife should not have any other gods or any other friends outside of her husband. Everything she did was within the realm of what her husband's little world would have been. Now this is the context behind Peter's command. Wives that are coming to Christ after finding themselves are finding themselves at odds with their husband's belief. Now again, you must remember that in those days, there was no separation of religion from economic, social, and secular structures. The pagan gods the people worshipped were included in every facet of life. There was no separation of church and state as we try to think of today. To deny the gods for a Christian wife, to deny her husband's gods, would have been economic and social suicide for many people including even the forfeit of life and property and liberty. Wives could face persecution from the, ha- from the husband and his family. If she did not worship the gods he worshipped again, she could be beaten and maybe even killed. Wives were expected to follow their husbands. It would have been very embarrassing for the husband if his wife refused to worship his gods. It could put his business in jeopardy, alienate him from social activities and events, and separate it from his family at large, speaking of his uh, brothers and, and uh, mother and father. We know that Peter is speaking to wives of unbelieving husbands due to his description of husbands as those who do not obey the word or that they may be one, speaking of one to the way, the Christian life to the faith. These phrases always depict those who do not know Christ in Scripture. It is assumed, and I want you to hear this uh, very clearly, it is assumed in Scripture that a true professing Christian will obey the commands of God's Word. I can take an amen there. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it seems like that today that that assumption has fallen by the wayside. Too many people who profess Christ think and act as if obedience to God's word is voluntary or that his word is optional or that certain scriptural truths are up to a vote or a change with cultural norms and political realities. And we are not immune to that ourselves today. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, told his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say you get to choose and pick which ones you want to obey. No, you obey my commandments. He continued to instruct them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come with him, and we will make our home with him. What a wonderful promise. But yet he also warned in the next verse, he warned his disciple that whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus then made it clear that his authority to make such a bold declaration is because that the word that you hear, the commands that you hear from me, is not mine, but the Father who sent me. You see, a true believer is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and who, like Peter, declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in those days, for a woman to declare that Jesus is Lord, and that Jesus is the true and one God apart from her husband, would have created tremendous conflict in the home. One of the reasons for Peter's instruction is for peace in the home. There would definitely be war in that household. A woman who accepted Christ might be tempted, as Pastor MacArthur writes, to treat her husband with disdain or indifference or even rejection because he's not a Christian. If she's not careful, he can become, speaking of her husband, very distasteful to her and maybe maybe even repulsive in the point where she would hold back intimacy because he's not a brother in Christ. This is what we're seeing as Peter is writing. And there must have been that type of struggle and problem in the home. Pastor John MacArthur goes on to note that Peter did not instruct the wives to preach to her husband. The wife is not called to consistently badger husband to repent and turn to Christ. Turn or burn, husband, or you'll be like this souffle. I don't know. Proverbs, a collection of wives' sayings, lists some interesting cautions about this. And I say this with with, uh, not knowing if I should, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll take this and go on. Remember, this is scripture from a wise man. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. 
It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. I love this one. I will never share this again. This is, so this is on for all display. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil with the, right man, with the one's right hand. However, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who, bring, she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. What he's saying here is, is a job, and, and you know, and I'm going to speak from this from experience, and I'll share a little bit more. This was my life. I lived in a home where my mom came to Christ after marrying my dad. Their life changed after 10 years of marriage. Things drastically changed. And so I lived this out for over 30 years before my dad finally came to Christ. So as I was preparing this, I could, I could almost see my mom in this, in the fact that she never did this as a good thing. There's a tendency for us, is it not many times when we get with our parents or get with our friends, to start preaching to them, finding ways to do so. But if you're like me, you know that preaching to someone who's not saved many times just falls on deaf ears. And many times it can be repulsive. And so we must be careful. It's not to preach. It's not to continually bring it up that you're lost and you're dead and you're going to hell. You know, that those types of things are not usually very helpful. So a wife is not called to preach to her husband in the bedroom in that way. He also did not call her to leave her husband. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 if you would. Because this might seem like one way that we can bring peace in the home. One way a woman may say, well, you know what? If I continue down this way, my husband has the right to beat me. And maybe he is. Maybe he's beaten her each and every day when she refused to serve food that was, that was uh, uh, sacrificed to the gods. Maybe she's in fear of her life. Could you imagine a relationship between her father-in-law and mother-in-law would be very strained. Brothers and sister-in-laws would be seeking ways to undermine her. So leaving her husband might be a, an actually something that's an attractive possibility to her, to save her life. But Paul, instructing the Corinthian church about relationship, has this to say about those marriages that consist of a believer and an unbeliever. To the rest I say, and I, not the Lord. Now what Peter is saying just a moment ago, or, or Paul is saying here, we're now Paul, when he, when he says that I, not the Lord, just a little bit later he was, he was uh, quoting a commandment of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. Now Paul is saying, not I, or I'm now saying this. I'm taking the principle of Jesus and I'm now applying it. That's what that means. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever. So this is the exact instance that we have. Or just a little bit opposite. And she consents to live with him. He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, this is not talking about salvation, but God's grace abides over them. In other words, God respects that marriage. He considers that a true marriage. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, let the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to what? Peace. Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So she's not to leave her husband, either for her own safety or, be or believing that he's unclean and God no longer approves of that marriage. For God does. That is a true marriage in his eyes. That's what he means. It is holy. Those children are truly children. So not to preach to her husband, not to leave her husband, but also not to set and demand her rights. See, she's not called to demand her rights. You could, you could hear her saying, listen, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And well, in those days, a woman wouldn't have a right. This here itself may cause her more harm. Like the Apostle Paul who wrote, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Peter understands that demanding our rights conflicts with the command to submit to God. Live the life that was assigned to you. So a woman who is always continually, especially in those days, demanding her rights would not actually have been a good thing. He's not calling her to do that. No, these passages are commanding submission. They have something to do about how we respond 
to suffering, not how to avoid it or rebel against it, but how we respond in submitting in obedience to God. One pastor said, if you want to make a maximum impact on society in which you live, then be a model uh, submissive citizen. If you want to make maximum impact in your job, in your workplace, then become a model employee. In the same way, if you want to make a maximum impact on your unsaved husband or wife, I would say in this case, be a model and submissive loving wife or husband. And so in other words, he's calling this wife whose life could be in danger, whose life is going to be dangerous at, at the best and at worst death. He's calling her to submit. Submit to your own husband. He's calling the believing wife to submit. Now the principle, the why. I think she would say, why? Why put my life in jeopardy? Why should I live under this type of torture? He's not letting me attend church. He's not letting me be with the body. He's refusing. He's making me do all these things. Well, the principle, the why they should do so, is that by their submission, Scripture says, their husbands themselves may become believers. Peter remarks that unbelieving husbands can be one without a word by how? By the conduct of their wives. Well, how one might be won by that? If you're not preaching, if they're not badgering them, how can you win one by their conduct? Well, Peter writes, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And you and I understand this. You and I have done business and gone to school with and lived with and had neighbors of people who by their own conduct and by their character you said there was something different about them. There was something about them that impacted you. You may not know exactly what it is, but you say there's something about them. And that's what he's saying here. You see, wives are to witness to their husbands by living out their faith in obedience to God's word. By living in obedience to God's word. Dr. Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, he notes that the wives' primary influence will not be speech, especially in those days, but godly behavior. And I tell you, this is something that I saw just with my mom. This is reflected in Proverbs 3 with 1, which what seems like a rich, prosperous super wife. Proverbs 31 says, an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax, and she works with her willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. Now, I know that this passage of Scripture has been many times as a weapon against you wives. But the real intent is to encourage and paint a picture of how a life filled with wisdom can impact and influence others, especially her family. Peter is recognizing that an unbelieving husband may struggle. He may struggle with his wife's Christian profession and all the troubles it may entail. It will cost him something if he continually puts up with it. But he will not be able to accuse his wife of disrespect, evil motives, or even rebellion. In other words, a believing wife's greatest evangelical tool is to lead her husband to Christ is the virtue of her character. And I can tell you, I have seen that in action for year after year with my mom and dad. I can't tell you how many times uh, my dad would, would, would actually sacrifice money so we could go to a Christian school or my mom could go to church the time that she would want to be in choir and so on and so forth. The times that I would wake up in the middle of the night and then my dad had went to work and there my mom is at five in the morning taking the only quiet time she has reading her Bible. And the time that she would uh, sacrifice and take us to church. And she did this with ever, without ever complaining or getting in a fight with my dad and asking, why aren't you coming? You should be coming or you're going to go to hell. Never any of those types of things. To build upon that, Peter then warns them not let, to not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. In other words, let it be your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let it be all those outside things that most people use to impact and influence people. Now, Peter is writing at a time when both the Roman and Greek culture put an emphasis on personal appearance, not unlike today. 
Since women had a low place in society in those days, one of the ways that they could influence and impact the world around them is their outward appearance. Peter is warning the children of God to not fall into that way of thinking. Instead, Peter writes in verse 4, as you're following along with me, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. A Christian wife should understand that it is her inward and respectful attitude and pure conduct that will make a powerful impact on those around her rather than her outward appearance. King Solomon notes in Proverbs eleven twenty two this same concept with an unusual word picture when he writes this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Again, that's scripture, not my own. You see, we see the same attitude and instruction from Paul when we look at Titus. When he says, older women, you're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working in home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, to say that you're a Christian, but to live in, in, in anti to that and to, to disobedience to God's word is to put it to, 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 uh, to, uh, to be reviled, to put it to, um, I lost my words, to, to make it almost of no effect. Timothy himself, or Paul would write to Timothy, women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness. And what is that? With good works, living out their faith. Again, one theologian writes that Peter hoped that submission and godly behavior would be how unbelieving husbands would be converted to the Christian faith. Now, let me say that this is not a prohibition from dressing nicely or wearing jewelry, but of spending excessive amounts of money and energy on outward adornment of wearing clothes that is seductive. It is also a warning for us today with our preoccupation with our styles and our fashions and our outward appearance. If you would, let's take and turn to the book, the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 3, if you would please. Here we read of God's indictment against Israel. His children, in disobeying his word and the rebellion against him. This has been hundreds of years of their rebellion against him. And God is pronouncing judgment against Israel at this time. But in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16, we see that God starts to indict now not just the men and the elders, but now the women of that day. Look at what he says in verse 16. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. I'm not even sure what that is. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a, with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, and the nose rings. How did they ever get ready in the day? The festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, in verse 24, there will be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness and instead of a rich robe a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty so God said because of your preoccupation with the outward and not the inward I am going to expose you for what you are truly on the inside God desires internal adornment not external adornment you might recall in our study of King David this past summer that in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature. Remember this? Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart or the inward appearance. Thank you. Simply said, a preoccupation with outward appearance to the disregarding of character is not godly. I wonder, is there an Instagram or a Snapchat for the godly woman? For the one who wants to do their good works and show it? Not so much, I think. When Peter writes of the impressionable 
or the imperishable, excuse me, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, speaking of the woman, the wife. And he says in God's sight that's very precious. He is not indicating that women are to be silent or have no opinion at home. That's not what he's saying here. That attitude is not scriptural nor wise. Men, our wives are one of our greatest resources of wisdom and instruction. Learn from them. They have a voice biblically and wisely so. Peter is simply pointing out that God will bless the wife who lovingly submits to her husband and will reward her faithfulness. Again, I refer you back to the words of Solomon in Proverbs. Instead of one who is badgering and nagging and going on and on, we look at one who has a quiet spirit and speaks wisely when spoken or when time to speak. Even in our own experience, we understand that we should not be manipulative or rebellious or demanding. These attitudes only serve to drive quarrels and create divisions, not only in the church, but in the home and in the family. Peter then takes us to the person, the precept and the person and the principle points to. In this case, it's the trustworthiness of God. Wives, submit to your husbands because it can lead them to Christ who points to God. He does this by referring them back to Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Look at verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, Peter uses an example for them to follow the holy women from the Old Testament. Most likely, Peter had Sarah specifically in mind, but most likely, I believe, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These three men were revered by the Hebrews and the Jews by the, as fathers of Israel, and they were revered by all Hebrews. Peter points out that these women hoped in God as their adornment. This means that it was apparent to any that observed them that they loved God and they trusted in his goodness. This is obvious as you read the Old Testament and see that these women abandoned their homes and their own families and in many of them their own gods to follow their husbands into Canaan and lived as nomads in a land that was promised to them but occupied and owned by others. They trusted that God would protect them and would fulfill his promises. So in other words, a wife in that day is to submit to her husband, not in fear that her husband would beat her or kill her, but trust that God would protect her. Now we know that reading through Genesis that these women did not always obey and trust God, nor their own husbands. These three women made some big blunders through their unbelief and doubt. They were not perfect, yet they still serve as examples, even to us today, in trusting that God is good and protect us and keep us. Now, look at as we go on there in verse 5. It says, in writing, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, Peter is most likely referring to Genesis 18, which you'll find on your monitor here, where it's written, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door behind him. Now Abraham, in verse 11, and Sarah were old, advancing years. The way of the women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, I shall have pleasure. Now this is probably not Sarah's finest hour. She had given up her dream of having a son. She was way past her child-rearing years, as was Abraham. Physically, she could not have children. It was impossible. Yet the pre-incarnate Jesus comes and shares that they will have a child. Sarah responds as most women would. She laughs not out of joy, but sarcastically. Yet in all that, she honored Abraham even in his old age and his lack of ability to procreate. This is shown in the phrase, my Lord. He may have been old and he may not have been able to do his manly duty any longer, but she still honored him. This is essentially what she's saying. Peter is encouraging women that even when your husband, listen to this, wives, even when your husband disappoints you, fails you, and maybe even marginalizes you, submit. This is not easy. This is very difficult. Men, we seem to have a gift in failing in our leadership. I'll take an amen as well. 
Too many times we have not loved in the way that we have been called. Like Adam, men have failed to protect and to keep our wives. Adam failed in the garden, and the pattern has repeated throughout history. Yet God still calls the unbelieving wife to submit to her unbelieving husband. Trust God. God even recognizes that what he has asked is terrifying. Look at what Peter writes at the end of verse 6. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, take you to that time. That woman could experience all sorts of things. From regular beatings to being marginalized to being divorced to death. But he says, do not fear anything that is frightening. This is where the person of God is on display. Sarah obeyed even when she was fearful. Even when Abraham put her in scary situations. Remember when he went to Egypt and Pharaoh and he went to Abimelech and he said to his wife, tell everyone that you're my sister. And all of a sudden these two men took an interest and started to take her. And she's about to say, what am I going to do? I'm going to wind up having to sleep with these men and maybe become their concubines. But yet each time she obeyed her husband. Again, a failure in leadership, but she obeyed. Now this does not absolve the husbands. Husbands, get this. This does not absolve the husband for your sin or excuses them. But God is calling for wives to do good and not fear, but trust that God will protect and keep you. God succeeds where husbands fail. And thank God for that. Do not be discouraged or fearful if you're here today and you're a wife with an unbelieving husband. But obey the commands of God despite the circumstances and consequences. Again, it should go without saying, but let me make this clear. This does not mean that a wife should follow her husband into sin. A wife is free to obey God always, even when her husband discourages it, denies it, or forbids it. God will protect you. So unbelieving wives are called to do three things in this passage. It's not on the screen, but it's just for you. She's called to submission. That's an attitude and action of obedience. She's called to faithfulness. That's following the words of God despite the consequences and the circumstances. And she's also called to trustfulness. Trustfulness. Trusting God, not in her outward appearance or herself, but to trust in God. Peter's not done, though. He doesn't leave husbands off the hook. In verse 7, Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. One pastor notes that in this passage, the word likewise means that a believing husband must submit to the loving duty of being sensitive to the needs, the fears, and the feelings of his wife. In other words, a Christian husband needs to subordinate his needs to her, whether she is a Christian or not. In the same way, he's not to preach to her and leave her and demand his rights. Peter specifically notes consideration, chivalry, and companionship in this short passage. In other words, the husband is to be understanding. I believe that this concludes consideration in knowing her deeply and intimately, knowing who she is, knowing what her fears are, her desires, her expectations, all those things that make her. It also means loving her deeply and intimately, not just physically, but all who she is and meeting her needs in that way and then serving her deeply and intimately. I, I, it's a sad fact, and I'll say this of my own experience and my own weakness. Many times our, as husbands, we do these things only because if we do them, there's something at the end of the rainbow for us. If I do this, then I get something from her, either food and clothing or whatever it may be. But that's not what God has called us. He's called us to do these things no matter if we receive these things back. The husband is to be chivalrous in that he recognizes that God's mandate for the husband is to protect his wife, to provide for and to guide her. Unfortunately, many times, the husband is the one who's the biggest boogeyman in her life. It's the one she's scared of, the one she sometimes doesn't know if she can speak to. And I, and I know that we've all been guilty of such things, but also to guide her. The husband is to give her companionship that God has intended for marriage by cultivating a relationship with her. She's not just an adornment. She's not just someone that's there to take care of your children and take care of you. She's not your mom. She's not your house cleaner. 
You know, she's not the woman that you just call up if you need something. No, you cultivate a relationship. It's about friendship and about intimacy. A husband who fails to do this, Peter warns, may have his relationship with God hindered in the fact that God will shut his ears to his own prayers. This is not optional for a husband, but it's a command. Love your, hus- your wives in an understanding way. I'd also like to add that these two passages is not teaching that submission is the same as an inequality. It does not mean that a husband is the leader over every woman or that he lords over her his, his, his authority or that he can abuse her or hurt her or refuse to listen to her. But it's saying wives come and submit. Now the context of 1 Peter here is about an unbelieving wife and an unbelieving husband and in the same way a believing husband and an unbelieving wife. And let me share this if you find yourself. I'm not sure if we find that here today. But if you're a believing wife, as my mom was with an unbelieving husband, pray for your husband. Love him, submit, obey the commands of God. I would say this, if you're in a relationship at this point, and it's that same, I have another warning for you. If you're a believing wife with a believing, uh, with a believing husband, continue to do the same. But what if my, I'm a believing wife and my husband is a believer, but he's not obeying. He's not leading as he should. Well, I think this principle still follows. Submit to him. Love him. If your husband professes Christ, but he's no longer leading as he should, he's not leading devotions, he's not doing the things of God, then submit to him. Obey him. And to that point, to where he disobeys God, then do not be a, a partner in that. But how about a believing husband who has a wife who professes Christ, but is not following through? Love her in an understanding way. Don't preach at her. Don't leave her. And don't demand your rights. Love her. Share with her why you're and lead in such a way that points to God. Now, I want to end with something, and I know my time is, is getting near, but I want to point out six things because I think this is interesting because, again, this portion of Scripture can, can, can really come to a hard spot. And I want to point out six things, and this comes from John Piper, that he writes that submission is not, uh, is not submission according to the past. And it's just going to be on the screen. You'll see it. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. It's not leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. It's not about avoiding every effort or avoiding every effort to change your husband. It's not about putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. And it's not that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband or that a wife is to act out of fear. Now, Pastor John Piper goes on to write that Scripture calls a husband to headship in marriage and the wife is called to submission. Again, I'll point you to the screen because I want you, wanted to find the two because sometimes we get so irritated and angry at this and this is a command of God that we struggle with. But let me share with you, even in our political and religious and social uh, culture, these things are still true. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take the primary responsible for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in home. It's not, I am the boss, and I'm the king of my castle, and you will do what I want. Husband, you will not have a happy life. I'll tell you that, if that's your attitude. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about a Christ-like leadership Biblical and godly leadership in leading her into things of command. It's not telling her where to shop, what to wear. It's not telling her about when to cook and when to have things done. It's not giving her a list of duties. And I've been with people who did all this. One time, we had a couple like this in our church. He worked, she stayed at home. and Well, she might have worked a little bit, but he didn't like the fact that she might watch TV with his work. So he would take the cord from the TV off and take it to work with him. So she couldn't watch TV. We've had friends here even in this church who wouldn't let his wife shop at certain stores. She had to go to a certain store. Then these, all these things. Now, they, we, we couch this, men. We couch this and say, well, we're protecting them and we're loving them. Let me give you a Greek word for that. Hogwash. We do that. We're guilty. So wives, just because we do that and we fail does not make, make it biblical. That's not what God's called it to. Headship is God's way. We saw it. It's the gospel. Your marriage, by the way, headship and submission, this is extra. There there may be a test later, but it's free. I'm not going to charge you. It's the gospel tale of how Christ loves us 
and saves us and presents himself, uh, us, as his bride in the same way. So it's the husband's primary responsibility to protect and guard his wife in the things of God. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. That's why she was created a second, as a helper, as a helpmeet. Not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a partner in our marriages that we may honor God. I say this all the time. Well, not all the time. I say it from time to time. I tell people that, look, if you're looking to get married and you both love God, then really one of the only reasons you should get married, or one of the main reasons you get married, because you believe that you and her can serve God better together than you can alone. Marriage isn't anything other than that. It's just really selfish and wanting my needs. Colossians does say, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Again, submission is not the same as inequality. There is a difference in function and role that does not cancel out equality. Men and women are equal in creation, in salvation, and in destiny. We are brothers and sisters in Christ with no difference. I remember when I uh, got to baptize Emily. I think she was actually the first and only child that I actually baptized. And I finally got to baptize her. And I remember baptizing her thinking, now why don't we say, you know, you just say my sister in Christ. I'm thinking, but this is my daughter. I can't say that. But I think, wait a second, she is. Once Emily accepted Christ, she became my daughter and sister in Christ. We have a new and different relationship. Now, you don't get to use it until we get to heaven, but you understand what I'm saying. Just as your wives is your sister in Christ. Now, let me give you one last thing, if I could. I'd like to solve you of this issue. As Peter is talking, he's talking to wives who have unbelieving husbands. As I said before, that was something that probably came after marriage. Because most likely they wouldn't have married him if they were Christians and, they, and the others weren't. Same case, my, as I said, my, my parents, uh, my mom got saved afterwards. My dad got saved after 30 years of my mom praying and just serving him. And she served him till the day he died and loved him, submitting to him. Not always an easy thing. It wasn't easy for their marriage. It wasn't easy for us kids. But she did it. Uh, not always... Uh, fully, but to the best of God's grace. And my dad responded in a, in a great way. This is extra, but I think it's something I need to give you. Men and young men and young women here, for those of you who may not yet be married, you need this warning. And you need to recognize this is the word of God, not mine. There is some wise decision on dating and marriage to prevent you from this happening. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 and 15. You know where I'm going. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with unlawliness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with unbeliever? I would say about missionary dating, don't do it. Has it worked? Yes. But it's the exemption past the rule. That's not phrased right, but you understand. Now, that does not mean that if you're married and one of you become believers and the other doesn't, that doesn't mean you didn't leave. We've already gone this. This is saying before you even get to that point. So what am I saying, young man, young lady? Don't date those who do not profess Christ and live in a godly life. Don't. As Peter said, how do you know if you'll save them or they'll save you? Don't do it. Don't consider marriage. Don't consider, well, let's just go out. They're, they're cute, they're funny, and let's see, and maybe I'll start inviting their church, and maybe they'll come to Christ. You don't know. The Bible says, do not be unequal. Yo, if you're there now, then you live with it. Live the life you're assigned. If you're here not, and you're not yet married, and maybe you're living with someone, maybe you're just engaged, and that's the case, my hard words to you is get out. Stop. Get counseling. Biblical counseling, what God's word may say to help you deal with it. But there's a warning. As Paul says, or Peter says, and Paul and Peter together, I'm not sure what Mary would say, I'm sure she'd agree, is that we need to realize 
that we are to be submissive to one another, loving one another, for Christ has loved us and submitted himself for us that we may have eternal life. That's the gospel story we tell as we respond and to suffering by enduring. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes. The worship team, come on up. I'd like for you to just take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray, and then ask the Spirit, how should I respond to these words? I think some of you have some decisions to make. I think some of you have some confessions to make. And some may have some recommitments to make in your marriages, in your relationships, and maybe your hard attitude. Or maybe you're here today and you say, I just don't like this. I hate this. I disagree with all that entails. I understand. I understand. But yet it's God's word. And he calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow him. Father, we just ask for you to give us strength. This message will probably hit everyone different. For some, it may just say, hey, we're past this. And praise God for that. May they be a testimony to a marriage and to relationships that are pleasing to God. Father, there's some here that maybe in their marriages they're struggling with this thing. Maybe, it, maybe it's not an unbelieving wife and an unbelieving husband. Maybe it's just two believers, but yet one is not living out the commands. And so they're trying to, how do I deal with this? Lord, give them one grace. Let them pray and love for their spouse. Let them seek out counseling that would help them through God's word. Find peace that you've called us to. Lord, help us to follow your word. And Father, when it comes to dating, when it comes to engaging and, and, and weddings and marriages, let us consider the word of God. And let us consider that it's true. And let us take its warnings and its heedings and commands seriously. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.